0: Of You might love this. It is a show and tell podcast. My name is Max
1: and I'm Cassie.
0: We're back again. Yeah. And, and today we're really excited because we have a subject that is something that I think all of us have an interest in everybody in this, in this room, room in quotes, since our guest is not actually with us.
1: I don't think anybody doesn't like animals. Most people like animals, <laughs> yeah, uh, but,
0: but very few people, vanishingly few people, put the amount of work and study into their love of animals, As our guest today, Malik.
1: Hi, Malik. Hello, thank you. So Malik, what are you speaking with us about today?
2: Today I'm going to talk about wildlife ecology and conservation sciences, which is what I studied in college, and also animal husbandry and animal welfare.
1: Amazing. I'm super excited about this. So Malik, what during your lifetime that is still going, uh, what sparked your interest in wildlife ecology and animal husbandry and welfare? When did when do you remember first becoming interested in animal welfare and care? And um, what was your story to get where you are today?
2: I've always had the opportunity or the the luck or blessing to always have liked animals and to know what I want to do. I can't remember a time where I ever didn't know that I wanted to work with animals in some way, shape or form. Uh, when I was really little, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And that was kind of the theme until like later elementary when, bless my soul, I realized that animals pass away and oh. <laughs> and... I didn't really want to be a part of that and having to tell people that their pets have passed on. But also around that time, I had also discovered zoology, which I loved for several reasons. One of them was that it sounded cool. (laughs) I've always really liked words and especially ologies and long words. And so that zoology had zoo in the word really yeah. kind of like sparked my interest and so i kind of just took that and ran with it flash forward to high school i was actually looking obsessively to find a sloth in my area uh, that i yeah, can sure. go see.
1: <laughs> that is such an admirable um goal gotta find
2: a sloth yeah yeah because there's there are we have zoos and aquariums here in washington like It's awesome that we have more than one but we don't have a ton that have sloth exhibits we do today but uh back in 2012 i was looking to just see a sloth and uh point defiance is my local zoo here in tacoma and they don't have a sloth exhibit but they do have a sloth named siesta who siesta. Is siesta the sloth because
1: they sleep a lot right
2: yeah <laughs> and my friend went to sammy which was science and math institute the high school that's based out of point defiance it's a really school or really cool school and the sloth came to be in their live um life or live art class or like moving in art <sighs> that's so that's cool. fascinating yeah i was really jealous and so because he was telling me that, yeah, a sloth came to our class. I was like, wow, there's a sloth at the zoo. Somehow, I've got to infiltrate the zoo and and see it up close and personal because there's not a an exhibit.
0: And so, like I, that episode of Hey Arnold, infiltrating the zoo, you know, like breaking in after. Am I am I is this ringing any bells or am I showing my age?
2: No, I watched Hey Arnold, and it's definitely ringing some bells um (laughs) so very much like that uh but i decided to do that a little bit more legit and become a youth (laughs) volunteer nice yeah so in 2012 i really started spending all of my time available during the summers, like 400 plus hours, um, volunteering for the education department at Point Define Zoo and Aquarium. Oh, sh- cool. Wow. Yeah, so I really had an awesome opportunity um, there and that's when I got my foot into the door of like animal husbandry, what that really is, which anytime I'm describing husbandry to people, I say it's just like husbandry, like you would think for people. Like, you hear that in medical um, environments a lot. It's, like, bedside manner. Whatever you would provide for a patient, a pet who might not be able to do uh, day-to-day things on their own, that's husbandry, and that's kind of what we do for animals in a zoo. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah, so uh, being a volunteer really, like, opened my eyes into, like, these superheroes that I thought they were, the zookeepers, and what they were really doing. And from there... Uh, I became a returning volunteer, a senior guide who helped mentor the middle school students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was super duper cool, but it also like instilled in me that that is exactly what I wanted to be doing. Um, Yeah. So I applied to Wazoo, the only college that I applied to because I knew they had a wildlife ecology program or just really awesome opportunities to study really firsthand with animals.
1: Oh, uh, and for our listeners, Wazoo is Washington State University.
2: Yeah, and it's a really cool place if you live in Washington State or the surrounding states to get um, a a more in-depth animal or a wildlife program. Uh, I always th- think that the wildlife ecology program at Washington State is kind of a smaller part of what would be the zoology program at uh, UW, or Western mm. or something like that. Um, but we get to take really cool classes with tons of field trips. I went to Montana, for, or, which is where the National Bison Range is. So we oh, could wow. do uh, reproductive studies or watching uh, the reproductive behavior of the elk that were there. And also write wow. um, population ecology papers using uh, statistical data that we acquired out in the field, which was really awesome. But the icing on the cake of my time at Wazoo was definitely uh, being able to work at the Grizzly Bear Research Facility uh, where they did a lot of nutritional studies. My faculty advisor, his name was Dr. Dr. Charles Robbins and he ran that facility and I've just been really lucky throughout my, my time when it comes to animals, because he told me that Hef I just showed up a week before school started, showed up at the right time at the grizzly bear facility and was prepared to work that I could work. And usually the way that he had gone about uh, getting volunteers was when you took his wildlife nutrition class, which was an upper level class for the wildlife program, If you Mm -hmm. got a certain percentage on the test, you could put your name in the hat to be drawn to see who was going to be his um, new volunteers coming that fall. Uh I had not taken that class yet. I was a sophomore at the time. And like I said, I just asked him. And he was Uh like, yeah, sure. Show up at the right time, prepare to work. And so I got to work with grizzly bears for a semester, which is to this day one of the coolest things that I've ever done. What is it
1: like? Tell us. It's
2: kind of exhilarating sometimes. We, of course, were uh, protected contact, which means that there was never a time that we were in the same space with mm-hmm. adult grizzly bears. So uh, we had guillotine doors. Um...
1: Not to chop their heads off. <laughs> no. <laughs> let uh, just clarify that. <laughs> yeah,
2: so what that means is that we had a, a pulley in the hallway w- which would pull that guillotine door up so we could transfer the grizzlies out into the hall or the walkway that would lead them to their open prairie area or their outdoor exhibit. And that way Mm -hmm. we could have access to their indoor enclosures where we would hose out their, um, the feces or whatever was there, clean it, put in food, and then open the door to give them inside outside access for the day. Mm -hmm. And so after college, I, oh yeah, also in college, I, had the opportunity of working with mule deer and white-tailed deer, Um, also at a a facility at Washington State, it was called the Wild Ungulate Facility, and for Mm -hmm. anyone who doesn't know, an ungulate is an animal with hooves, so a Mm -hmm. deer, um, zebras, pigs, moose, lots of mammals, um, our ungulates so we work specifically with deer mm-hmm. i also got to work with pygmy rabbits and wow i was a student volunteer for the raptor club which was super duper cool oh yeah oh
1: yes i did that too like uh, actually after i graduated from my geology program nice yeah who's your favorite
2: my goal bird <laughs> when i started was gus the great gray owl I thought he was just so majestic looking. His huge facial disc was just, like, awesome. When I got to him, I discovered that he was not as majestic and regal as he looked. He's a big old scaredy bird. (laughs) But um, it was still a really cool opportunity. And um, during this time, throughout all of these things, uh, on top of being able to work with animals, I also got to learn about why we protect these animals, and, mm-hmm. and why to me it's so important that mm-hmm. people continue to do so. Um, I just really think that if humans are having an impact on animals, then it should be, and not just animals, but their environments and, and the wild spaces in which they live, then it should be those very humans who put forth the, the effort to mm-hmm. uh, compensate for those those mm. effects and yeah. so-, so i
1: i have a question for or, well i guess um some of our listeners might hear uh wild animals in a university setting and and get like eek feelings would you be able to describe to our listeners the kind uh, of conditions that uh the animals at the university live uh, within and Uh, What kind of research is being done and the measures to ensure their well-being?
2: For sure. For sure. That is definitely true. A lot of people have that negative connotation for any animals under human care or in captivity. I like to to kind of like correct my wording because of that a lot of the times because I was talking to people on zoo grounds, um, as an educational interpreter. So I, I find myself saying, saying under human care a lot of the times, just because it sounds a little bit better than in captivity. But I want to to say that these animals are, are ending up in these facilities a lot of the times because they have nowhere else better to go. The animal, the grizzlies mm. f- specifically at the research facility, they were nuisance bears that would come Mm. from national parks like Yosemite or Yellowstone who had been reported repeatedly coming too close to campsites or coming too close to peoples. And so wildlife, uh, the the Department of Fish and Wildlife and wildlife officials either have a, a choice to euthanize this animal or relocate it to a place, if possible, where it can contribute to to research that's gonna be helping that species as a whole and possibly to prevent These human wildlife conflicts down the line, so for us specifically, we're doing nutritional studies that are going to let us know what are the the requirements, the food requirements and the environmental requirements, how much food in a given space within these national parks do these bears need um, so that they're not relying on human Mm. Interaction for food um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so making sure that there are enough blueberry bushes or salmon runs or whatever food source it might be in these in these areas or that these areas are protected so that, we're not having this down the line. For the, right. the deer specifically, they were hand raised, which is really important for the studies that we were doing, which was to watch specifically what are these these deer eating when given the opportunity to eat, to eat whatever they want to during certain times throughout the year. So we take them out into the field and follow these deer step by step to see what are they biting, where are they biting, and, and which species uh, of plants they're eating because we want to know the composition of the the wild counterpart or they're still wild which is which is why it's so important to hand rear them uh, mm-hmm. so that it c- we can get to them and and have them be comfortable with us watching them do these things and how we go about getting young deer that can be hand raised is that they are found by people throughout the state who have either found them alone or with mothers who have unfortunately encountered a car in the wrong place Mm, and so they're they're orphaned deers and we're providing them a second chance at life and also an opportunity to like i said support their species and the places that they've come from and that happens a lot of the times in zoo settings too these exotic animals um were either born in a in a captive setting and they do not have the skill sets to be able to support themselves out in the wild and even Mm -hmm. if they did have the skill sets to support themselves in in the wild these wild spaces that they're native to are extremely endangered like sumatran tigers Mm -hmm. in southeast asia Mm -hmm. and so we don't have the space to put them safely back into the wild a lot of the times and if we did mm-hmm. it would just be causing more human wildlife conflict or that that animal would just be out competed by something else um and so i personally think that it's super important to have these sanctuaries and these um facilities where wildlife can be advocates for their species and where mm. in Humans can have the opportunity, especially humans in urban areas like myself who grew up in Eastside Tacoma, where I'm fortunate to have a zoo, but maybe somewhere in the the Midwest or someone in California or just other parts of the the country and world in the world who live in urban settings don't have the opportunity every day to see a tiger or to see an elephant. And so they're not making Mm -hmm. these emotional connections to these animals to say. I can make a difference. Choosing a paper bag over a plastic bag is only a tiny thing. But because I've seen this animal and I've created empathy for this am- animal, mm-hmm. I might take this on and make a small change in my life um, to make that better. Even if it is just a tiny thing as, as picking a different bag or going without a straw or or X, Y and Z. And mm-hmm. it's, it's those connections that are super duper important and super duper cool to me as a wildlife conservationist and a wildlife educator um,
0: to be able to have. Amazing. So it sounds it sounds like you've always had this passion for animals. I mean, start starting from wanting to work with a sloth and making that a goal <laughs> and, and then accomplishing that. But I'm curious about when the conservation side of it came in, because I mean, for a lot of people who love animals and who are passionate about animals, conservation is a big part of it because there is th- that recognition that you mentioned that, you know, um, human conflicts with wildlife create tend to create negative outcomes for everybody. So I just, I I would love to hear about how that became like a more solidified part of your passion for uh, wildlife.
2: I think partially when I was a youth volunteer, just because that was the message we were trying to relay as, as educational interpreters, as, as volunteers in the zoo. And you really start to get like, these aren't just animals to me they're people like I grew up in Tacoma and I've been going to this zoo for my entire life I have pictures Mm -hmm. of me my very first birthday at point of mine zoo that's nice and so when you care about these animals so much you start to care about them beyond the individual because you care about that one animal so much like I love Mm -hmm. the elephants that I worked with so much and I love that sloth That I went and studied so much, and the little, even down to the little sea stars that are affected by wasting syndrome. Like, I love these animals, and I have such appreciation for the joy they bring me um, and the roles they play in our environment that I couldn't imagine conservation. And striving to work towards a world in which these animals and these places can be protective, protected, mm-hmm. not being a part of my character because they're they're hand in hand. But I think it's in the zoo when I had the opportunity. Like I was there every day for a week, some some weeks and you wow. know, several hours in a certain space. So, you know, when you when you're sitting at a touch tank, even when it's really slow and it's been Three hours, and all you have is just this one little sea star, or not one, but you know <laughs> you're watching it run back and forth, run in air quotes, because a lot of people don't. <laughs> you know that means nothing to to people who just walk by on a beach and see a sea star yeah. and it's sitting still. And so I was have had the honor of creating these really close emotional connections to these animals, yeah. and so it just grew and shot. Through the roof exponentially when I got to college and discovered that there's really so much more to an ecosystem, so much more to what makes an animal thrive. Um, and so that's really also when I started loving plants so much because I I used to mm-hmm. always be an animal centric person, especially before I started college. I never thought I was going to love plants as much as I love animals, which I definitely <laughs> do now. Um, but in college, I had to start taking forest plants and ecosystems, arid land plants and ecosystems, silviculture, which mm-hmm. is like forest structure, and and you know before having taken them, I didn't really understand why it's important to take them. But mm-hmm. sure, the plants a lot of the time, you know, that's the food source for animals, and the composition yeah. of that, um, you know, just really is is so insightful and so cool to learn so and plants Mm -hmm. are living things on their own and
1: yeah
2: and so yeah plants and animals have just kind of always been my yeah
1: well and also a habitat for animals
2: for sure also in college like you are you just reminded me that like like you said habitat for animals um is a huge part like i'm a wildlife ecologist by by trade which is not specifically animals it's kind of the whole picture Mm. but Mm -hmm. i've done primarily mostly animal things but something that i did in college because i wanted to get more of a a habitat perspective was i was a riparian restoration intern um oh wow and riparian areas are areas near bodies of water so lakes streams marshes bogs fens any really wetland and the the planted areas b- around it is a riparian area. And those along with grasslands are one of the two most um, endangered ecosystem types in the world. Um, especially, really? yeah, um, grass or wetlands and grasslands, they're in trouble. And, mm. and the animals, Why? well, um, in the Midwest. I mean, that's
1: probably a big question, but. <laughs> um,
2: well, it's really easy, actually, not really easy, but like plain and simple it comes down for me to agriculture there's a hmm. there's a lot of of clear-cutting if you think about the midwest mm-hmm. and and all of the grass species the variations yeah. of grass species that had such deeply rooted roots um that were were had evolved to tolerate such intense winds and weathers and things all throughout the Midwest have now just been eradicated to be replaced Mm -hmm. by monocultures like soy and corn Corn. and rice. Um, And so uh, that is a, is a a huge detriment to, uh, to grasslands, and another one is just development as a whole, or yeah, development as a whole. Um,
1: mm-hmm.
2: Homes being built, urban areas, and that's another thing that um, that really impacts wetlands. Um, mm-hmm. But when I think of wetlands, I think of amphibians, and amphibians are something that we, as ecologists, call indicator species because they they are really good indicators of how healthy an environment is because they breathe through their skin and you have to have mm-hmm. a good quality environment good quality water um to live there and so if you're not finding amphibians there then that's indicative exact of something problem. yeah um and so that is why riparian areas are so important uh and some that's something that i have learned throughout my time as an intern and in,
0: i was you have cool. taught me something today i did not know that i did not know the term riparian zone until until i just wikipedia'd what you were talking about nice so that's really neat i'm glad and i also
1: did not know that uh um amphibians were an indicator species
2: that makes me me happy like things like
0: that are why i do this like yeah that's cool <laughs> If you see no frog, there's troubles in that bog.
1: I remember uh, living in Indiana a um, long time ago. Well, I guess 1800s. You know, a you lot lived in of Indiana
0: in the 1800s. No, oh. <laughs>
1: that was real funny. Um, God, wow. <laughs> sorry. Um, back in the 1800s, I suppose a lot of the natural wildlife, the uh, vegetation and the, um, animal, uh, diversity was just decimated. Um, and it was really boring living there because not only did you have just a bunch of farmland, which I understand farmland, you know, farms are very important. They are. We, we appreciate, we appreciate our farmers so much, but on such a massive scale. Um, not having that natural vegetation, um or like i remember you know the state of indiana would freak out the news stations would freak out if they might have seen or might have caught video footage of a black bear in one location, or they, they might have caught, gotten a uh, video footage of a cougar in one location in the entire state. And it's, it's just so weird to me. Cause I grew up in Colorado now living in Washington where wildlife is just, you know, of course, you know, we've got our own issues, but there's so much more wildlife here. Um, that I just, I didn't, I didn't understand, you know, a, what the big deal was about having wild animals. And B, it just got really boring because, I mean, all you see is squirrels, white deer, <laughs> and, and that's about it. Yeah. Like yeah, rabbits, bunnies.
2: It could be yeah, kind it, of like it, that in Pullman sometimes. And I definitely got a sense of that and can see why it would be so boring. And yeah, what you're telling me just makes me think of how, like, sad and how not just that area but like a lot of the US after settlers mm-hmm. had come through had probably just been really boring and so drastically different than sure. than having lived there before like mm-hmm. red wolves are are one of the are the only species of wolf that are native that can be found only in America they can't be found really? natively in Canada. I think maybe historically they made it into um, in northern regions of Mexico, but for the most part, the, the majority of their their historic range was primarily in Washington State, which was cool. Oh, mean, Not in Washington State and the United States. Um, okay. They had been okay. all throughout <laughs> uh, all throughout the country. Um, Mm-hmm. now they can only be found in one national park called um it's alligator river national park in south carolina wow. or north south carolina um so yeah this wolf that used to be prolific throughout the the southernmost united states is only found in one one state now and like it must have been like you like you said so many different animals like the bears the bobcats the cougars all of the cool animals at that time were wiped out and um Mm -hmm.
1: well the land made for human use rather than just coexisting with the land
2: um and what i learned in college that really interests me was the 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 societal like repercussions of of these human wildlife conflicts like the big bad wolf.
1: Yeah. Oh
2: yeah. Like that is is a caricature of literally a wolf and how they are a threat to to farmlands and agricultural way of life and that is just mm-hmm. something that was seeded so early in the history of the United States um, and is still mm-hmm. alive today and I think that's super interesting and like very sad but also. Like I said, super interesting. Yeah,
0: yeah. There are a lot of those sorts of um, folk stories and other like cultural items that exist within the the um, the North American, broadly speaking, the North American uh, mindset when it comes to history and culture. That kind of illustrate this difficult relationship we have.
1: Us versus them.
0: Yeah. This sort of con. This this misunderstanding. That uh, that people have that nature is something that that has to be mastered instead of something well, that has to be worked and, with, and
1: we could connect this to um, Judeo-Christian mythology and teachings of you know the earth is created for
0: for humans for humans that, like, for us to, to use. do what we want yeah.
1: or what we need with it. Um, that's a whole other yeah. episode. <laughs> um, uh, you're just making me um, remember, and just listening to what you're, you've been talking about. Uh, growing up in Colorado, they have had many issues, and and I'm sure you're at least you know vaguely f- familiar with uh, some of these issues, with overdevelopment in the Denver metro area, um, also uh, continued development in the Rocky Mountains. Um, with wildlife coming down into the Denver metro area, uh, that is creating you know human wildlife conflicts. Like cougars are uh, um, sometimes come down and and create a scare. Um, also, prairie dogs are a big thing. Um, have you ever seen a prairie dog, Malik? I have
2: seen a prairie dog. I went to South Dakota, yeah? and I saw some prairie dogs there. It was very cool. Out in the wild. Yes, I saw some bison Good. and I saw some some prairie dogs. It was super cool. It was in the Black Hills. Oh, yeah. I this is very off topic, um, but I went to school at a a a tribal school. A um Puyallup, or Chief Leshy Schools is on the Puyallup Tribal Reservation. I myself am mm-hmm. Blackfeet Native, and so. I went on a field trip to a National Indian Education Association conference when I was a senior to learn about language mm-hmm. immersion programs. But it was so cool because we got to see bison and and prairie dogs.
1: Amazing! That's awesome. <laughs> I love those
0: little guys. They're so cute. They ah, are and so they're cute. Loud.
1: They're very loud. <laughs> well, they're very uh, intelligent. They've got a whole. Method of communication. I did a little science fair project when I, well, rather my mom had me do a science fair project (laughs) when I was in elementary school on, um, prairie dog communication. They have a whole, you know, method of communicating to one another. They have elaborate burrows with different little rooms. Like there's a potty room and a sleeping room. And I think an eating room and, um, and they have, well, I left Colorado in 2002 at the time, they were getting close to, you know, being considered uh, to be put on an endangered species list because they are facing the same dilemma with farmers as wolves tend to face dilemmas with farmers, um, mainly that um, their a c- a cattle end up uh, falling their their legs end up falling into burrows and they they break their legs. Um, But then there's also, and yeah, that's a concern because prairie dogs like to drift around and basically live where they want to live. They live in little communities, but they will move out if they're given the the opportunity. Um, But I think the most concerning thing was, in Colorado at least, was uh, developers, and if you visit Colorado, it's just lots of suburbs, lots and lots of developments of houses um, in the Denver metro area. Um, very cookie-cutter urban suburban 90s uh, houses.
0: Edward hands Yes, uh, exactly.
1: If uh, developers, if they wanted to not pay extra to have prairie dogs on land that you're developing on, relocated. Um, or, yeah, I think the main thing was relocation. You could either bulldoze over their holes and suffocate them to death and just build on top. Or you could poison them with poison pellets. God. Yeah, it was it was it's a just horrible, a very disordered
0: way of envisioning yeah. your relationship with the land.
1: Well, and the, so yeah, and they would put they would soak these or they'd put these poison pellets in their burrows, and then put soaked newspaper uh, in their burrows on top of that to trap them in there, no. and then they would die slowly over several days as the poison ate away at their insides. No. And the, not only is this horrific and sad. But prairie dogs are part of a very important ecosystem. They coexist with um, red foxes, with burrowing owls, uh, I believe with snakes, um, black-footed ferrets. um, Hawks really depend on prairie dogs for food. Um, It's just a huge controversy. I remember when I was living there, Celestial Seasonings tea built a factory i believe in in the boulder area and they killed all the <gasps> prairie dogs that were on the land that they were building their their facility on we're
0: coming for you celestial seasonings for- <laughs> you can't hide this anymore
1: <laughs> i just remember it was a big controversy and yeah it's just crazy that's the that's the uh the ecosystem versus man conflict I grew up with living around. I think it's been improving. I think they're, I think from what I've been seeing and hearing, they're taking more measures to take care of prairie dogs. Yes. Prairie dogs do sometimes have the plague. You just don't want to get too close to them.
0: (laughs) Well, that's that, that is goes back to something that Malik was talking about earlier. You know, you can't uh, like, like you were saying, Malik, you can't always relocate an animal that is, for instance, critically endangered because in the process of doing that relocation, you'll be creating more of those human-wildlife conflicts. Mm-hmm. Yes. And th- these are just things that you always want to avoid, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes me
2: think of what you're talking about with cougars specifically, and something that I was actually just telling my brother earlier today, so I want to say it again. Something yeah. that I learned that was—it su- sounds counterintuitive, but that happens a lot of the times with, with animals that have human-wildlife li- conflict, like wolves— or like coy or sorry, not coyotes, but uh, cougars is that what you'll have is that you'll have a a resident cougar, like a big male or female that that has the territory that they patrol. And Mm -hmm. they, because that is their territory, will keep out maybe younger, more uh, rambunctious males who would cause human-wildlife conflict because they maybe don't know, they're not as good hunters, so they might go into urban areas as much, or more than a, an older mm-hmm. cougar or something like that. There's mm-hmm. there's tons of reasons that these younger cougars are are causing more problems than the more seasoned veterans who obviously have to know a trick or two to stay around. But mm-hmm. what happens when you you go through and you, you kill that resident male, mm-hmm his territory that he patrolled is now free real estate and so you Hmm. get more influx of rambunctious problem males in an area little teenagers then you then you (laughs) would had you just left that one resident male there who was keeping away those teenagers causing problems in the first place you might not have even seen that cougar because it was doing his job and doing it well but by cause by solving a problem that you thought was a problem and removing that cougar, it only You're actually creating more problems.
1: Yeah. Wow.
2: <laughs> wow. Which
1: interesting is a
2: theme in a lot of like with your um with your prairie dogs or with wolves, where if you go in and you you kill. A, an alpha male or female um, in a pack that is causing problems to cattle in an area like which happens here in Washington State. Several packs have been taken out because of wolf and cattle conflicts. Um, and what happens is that those those packs they fracture and they fall apart. And now these wolves, these packs that were working together as a whole. Are now crumbled and have no structure. And so these wolves are more likely to go after the sitting cows instead mm-hmm. of oh. going after something that me- might be more a historical and natural prey spe- species. So mm-hmm. I think that is a really good takeaway is that a lot, sometimes you might think you're solving a problem, but you're just creating more. Mm-hmm.
0: And this is why we need more folks who understand how complicated our relationship with our surroundings are. Like you, Malik.
1: Thank you. Where do you think Where do you think you're going to go next with all this amazing knowledge and passion for wildlife ecology your, and conservation?
2: That is a really good question. Considering the world is ending, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but
2: um, ideally, my dream job. Would be to continue educating people on wildlife and conservation issues and to become more educated myself. So I'd like to go back to college to get a master's mm-hmm. and inevitably a Ph.D. and take a swing at academia if I can. All right. All right. Big goals. Um, I'd like to <laughs> to do some government work Um either before that or during that time and worked for the Department of Fish and Wildlife at some point or the United States Forest Service. Nice. I did get accepted into the Peace Corps. I applied to be a community oh. en- a community environment promoter. In Paraguay, I also have a Spanish degree, so that helped a lot. Unfortunately, uh, Amazing. I did not get to go. I took an elephant keeper job instead of that but also i was having some travel document issues so gotcha it was kind of just saying take that keeper job which i did
1: mm-hmm. so you've worked with elephants i've worked
2: with elephants which was super cool how is
1: it That's a dream for me. I I just cannot emphasize it enough. What is it like to work with elephants? (laughs) It is
2: very humbling. Oh, sure. And very, very cool. Sometimes, you know, even though you do it every day, you you come in and you're like, damn, that's a freaking elephant. Um, (laughs) and it's just so cool. Um, and then like, you you know, you, we come in and we're upstairs. We're looking at her from the top and then we walk and you know, she looks, we see her every day. So she doesn't look small, but she looks Suki sized. And then you go downstairs and you're just like, wow, this is a 12 foot tall being lumbering over me with a 200 plus trunk who could do so much damage, but yet we're sitting here interacting with each other and working towards a world where humans and wildlife can live together in harmony harmony. And that's so cool. And just
1: Mm. can you feel and sense the intelligence when you're working with them?
2: Yes. They're so smart. Watching them eat is one of my favorite things. And, uh, so, so so, uh, back to animal welfare, something that is, very important that uh all of the facilities that i have worked with and have been around do something called enrichment and enrichment is a mm-hmm. way to like it sounds enrich and just spice up the lives of an animal <laughs> um who is under our care so that might be there are i think there are five but there might be four different types of enrichment so a sensory enrichment so am i be a smell or a sound or you know something that elicits their senses, a food. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be a, a new food, a novel food item that they've never had before. So we got to give our oh. our elephants try durian and
1: oh. they do
2: not like it. Um, okay. <laughs> but that's an example of enrichment. In fact, sometimes we played music for the girls. So that would Aww. be an example That's of sensory enrichment. And Hanako, she uh, really liked when the peoples would dance for her. Uh, that was very fun. <laughs> so there's sensory, there's food, uh, and sometimes it's food that they might not like. You know, why not?
1: Yeah, um,
2: yeah. It could be an environmental enrichment. So we could change something about their environment. So put hanging things in there, take something away,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: you know, change something about their environment. And then four is like toys. We could give them things to play with and to manipulate. And we could mix up different types of enrichments. Like maybe we could put a novel food item inside that toy and make it hard to get so they'd have to think about going how they mm. go about doing this, something that they would never have mm-hmm. seen in the wild, um, but now, because they're here with us, have an opportunity to use their their mind to think about how they're going to tackle this problem. So
1: this critical thinking skills. Yes, so
2: and, and and by doing that, by giving them these things, they are, like you said, problem solving, which they would do out in the wild, but they're doing it on a different scale here. One of my favorite things to do, for the elephants was to give them new puzzles or like things that they hadn't seen in a while. And my favorite one was we, they had a, a metal mesh cage for, it was a feeding cage on the outside of their enclosure. So, mm-hmm. and each cage had a small square opening on each side, one side, mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah. So, but it was on the bottom so it's mm-hmm. a it's a oh. tall cylinder metal mesh um and it's see-through but the only one mm-hmm. way to, for the elephants to get in there is the the holes on either side of the bottom my huh. my favorite thing to do was take a cabbage which they love and <laughs> pour out the middle and string a chain through there mm-hmm. and chain the cabbage at the top of the feeding cage, as high as I can get it, Mm -hmm. um, and make the chain really taut. That way,
1: Mm. the elephant
2: could not reach most of the cabbage. The only way to get the cabbage out is to, to core it from the inside out. So they would spin the cabbage with their trunk so that the chain would kind of pull out the insides and it would fall apart so they'd never get a whole cabbage but they would get the leaves bit by bit and they had to think about how they would go about even getting the cabbage in the first place um wow so things like that were my i loved it i could sit there and watch (laughs) elephants eat for 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 the rest of my life because they do it. <laughs> they they walk in, you shift them in from outside or wherever they're at. They look at it and, and they just go for it. And 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 whether or not they've seen it before, it never really takes them that long.
3: Um wow.
2: and they're always learning new ways to go about doing things. One of my coworkers who had worked with elephants at other facilities told me once that he saw an elephant use her breath and a corner to pile up some hay. There was hay scattered throughout the floor and mm-hmm. she she blew, she twisted her trunk and blew at the same time so that when she blew, all the hay on the floor went rushing towards the corner. But because it was in a corner, huh. she knew it would bunch up. So she didn't have yeah. to spend her time scooping up all that hay, she just twisted and blew And so that, the hay bunched up by itself.
1: So she used her trunk as a leaf blower. Yes. Wow. That
2: is
0: so (laughs) neat.
1: And that
2: to me is so ridiculous because they just, they're so smart. They are so aware of their environment and where you are at, where their food is at. And, And yes, so you can definitely tell or sense how smart they are. You can see their eyes watching you doing the stuff and wow. kind of see the wheels turning, it is it's mm-hmm. just very humbling.
1: Wow. If and when you continue your education and research, what animals or groups of animals or environments do you think you'd be interested in focusing in on? So
2: um, something that I would like to get really into is environmental DNA or eDNA and Ooh. oh
1: yes, yes,
2: and learning more about landscape genetics. Mm-hmm. One of my professors at Washington State, her name is Dr. Karen Goldberg. Um, mm-hmm. She runs a lab, but I cannot think of the name of it—not the endangered species lab. But she um, she focuses in environmental DNA, and what that is is using. DNA that we can collect from like soil or water samples that would come from skin cells or slime coats that would slough off amphibians and fish or mm-hmm. um, oily secretions that come from the coats of some aquatic mammals or things like that. We can take those samples and use that DNA to, to find out more about how landscapes defect, or uh, not defect, but affect the gene flow of a species throughout an ecosystem. Wow. Wow. And that to me is so cool. That is like studying animals through the environment is is what gets me going. Uh, So (laughs) I would- You don't say. Yeah. I would love to make strides towards towards doing that.
1: Yeah. Actually, Malik, I think uh, one of my friends, she may have worked with Dr. Goldberg. Her project focused on collecting or attempting to collect uh, DNA of a water body to examine potential, or I I guess to to see if she could notice a difference in invasive species populations. And I think she was like testing the technique uh, to see if it was reliable, but it was super interesting. So it's cool that you're bringing environmental DNA up. Yeah, I'm I'm sure like what from what you're saying, there's so many different avenues like in which you could use techniques in collecting environmental DNA to solve so many questions and problems.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I think I'm I think it's a fairly new discipline like not a ton of people mm-hmm. have been doing it for a very long time, which is something that is true of genetics for mm-hmm. wildlife mm-hmm. Yeah, as yeah. whole and genomics also. Mm-hmm. There are well, at least while I went to college there were just a a a, a ton of people who were moving towards that that realm of science just because there every day we're learning more about dna and more about genes of animals just thanks to things like the crispr and and just all kinds of other stuff that i don't even know about but the world the world <laughs> of genetics is definitely expanding and
1: yeah. i think
2: that because of that and because finding something that hasn't been done really appeals to me and and also having a bit of security in in wildlife in a discipline where there are a lot of people who want to work with animals and there are a lot of compassionate, hardworking people who would move across the country, pick up everything they know to work with Mm -hmm. animals or work in the environment. And so I think Something like that is where you can be kind of a commodity, hopefully, maybe in 30, 40, 50 years where Mm -hmm. at this time I would essentially be on the, the frontier of environmental DNA or genetics. And so down the line, when I'm a professor, hopefully I could be. Back in my day.
1: <laughs>
0: um, and so I think that would be yeah. really cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's well, exciting.
0: Malik, this has just been such an amazing and enlightening conversation. Um, and I just have one last really quick question for you. What is your favorite species that you've ever worked with?
2: Oh, that's a very hard question. Um, <laughs> that's like asking. Top three.
1: Um
2: I'm going to say my top three, just because they were the most recent that I have professionally worked with, which is kind of an opt out, but it was my my <laughs> first big boy zoological job. So they'll always have a place in my heart is elephants, clouded leopards, yes. and musk oxen. Oh. Those were the, oh. the three elephants, or not three elephants, three animals that I took care <laughs> of or helped take care uh-huh. of in the elephant barn department at Point Defiance and so i have not i don't think of myself as a big cat guy although i love big cats but some, you know cat people are cat people um <laughs> but i'll always have a huge spot in my heart for clouded leopards our our world's smallest species of big cat. um musk oxen which are just so cool they're just this prehistoric tundra goat and um <laughs> elephants which you know the world's largest land animal you can't not love them so right that's a good and cool
1: lovely oh and i i do have a, a one more question i'm sorry go for it.
0: Yeah,
1: totally. <laughs> if there are any people out there any listeners who feel like this might be something that they want to go into uh what what tips or uh bits of advice do you have on how they should get started in that direction and also um also question sorry this is a sub question uh do you know if graduate school in wildlife conservation ecology zoology do you have to pay 100 percent or do you generally get stipends uh and tuition waivers
2: for the first part something that you or what is my advice um my advice is to throw yourself wholeheartedly 100 percent into what it is that you want to do but understand that it doesn't make a lot of money it's not a luxurious lifestyle it is not easy work like you have to scoop poop and you might have to scoop poop for free (laughs) at 6 a.m two days a week when you have a full course load and a part-time job and you're tired but you know if you really want to do it then just do it and realize that like it's an awesome opportunity and everything you do is going to pay off down the line. And, mm-hmm. and secondly, cherish every single connection you make. Um, whether it's just some cool cats who are bringing you to a la- lager in the middle of Idaho, or they are, <laughs> you know, somebody that you were a volunteer with when you were a youth or wherever at the zoo. Um, those connections help. Networking in the animal world is immensely important. It's it's a small knit community. I was able to get tickets for free at the Memphis Zoo across the country Whoa. because I had a coworker here at Point Defiance who knew a gal at at, at Memphis <laughs> Zoo. So you know, I wow. I have been able to to go get behind the scenes tours of the uh the portland zoo's elephant barn because you know the community is small you tons and tons of doors opened up for you because of the people that you know and so make all of the connections and cherish those connections uh the best that you can
1: oh amazing and
2: to answer the second part or your second question is is wildlife or zoology grad school as expensive and daunting financially as other (laughs) um disciplines i find though i am not in it yet that it is not that um well it can be depending on what you're studying um and where you are what you're doing like if you want Mm -hmm. to study green sea turtles in hawaii and you know do something that's really cool and a lot of people are striving towards doing it you know you Mm -hmm. might be really lucky depending on who you know um and how your resume looks and how you look on paper to get that job to get an unpaid Mm -hmm. internship but a lot of the times you have to um bring in the money it's a lab Mm -hmm. or it's a facility organization Um, that's already doing research and Mm -hmm. because you're bringing in the money to participate and support your research that's connected to that it's really expensive other times uh, like for instance the what i experienced through my tas at washington state is you don't take very many classes so you can apply for financial aid or funding or work study through whatever is available to you, and so your classes are kind of covered. But you could also, mm-hmm. you know, work as a teacher, teaching teaching assistant and do labs um, and things like that that either put some extra money in your pocket so that you can live because mm-hmm. financial aid is covering your few classes um, but other than that I you know I don't think it's cheap, but I I think it's, fairly doable. I don't know if that made any sense what I
1: said. Okay. Did it? Yeah, I just, I'm always curious um, because I know that certain areas in science, grad school, you know, you can get various levels of financial help. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know when I did geology, it really just also depends on what university you're going to uh, because it really does depend from university to university. Um, WSU for the geology program, and this is at least when I was there, uh, it, you could apply to become a teacher's assistant or a research assistant. And based on whichever one you, you got, so either you were working in a lab or working as a teacher, and you would get paid for that. And then also they offered a tuition waiver every semester. Um, but that's geology. Um, and I know geology departments tend to get money from oil companies, unfortunately. But... Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, uh, in general, like if you go for the sciences, you'll, you'll have some opportunity for financial assistance. So my previous degree that I just finished, I did not really get any financial assistance. So it wasn't the science. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, hopefully there are folks out there listening right now who now have a, uh, a much better idea of how they can get into doing the kind of work that you're doing, Malik. And I, again, I can't thank you enough for coming and joining us today. It's been so much fun learning about this with you. Thank
2: you for the opportunity. I always like having a conversation about animals
0: and plants. Yes. Well, we hope, you'll, we hope we'll hope see you around here again sometime. Maybe we can talk more about uh, some, some other subjects within what wildlife about, and yeah. whatever. That would be cool. Like elephants uh. or... Uh, but for now, <laughs> it's time to switch gears and talk a little bit about what our listeners have said uh, last week. Episode we had our dear friend Laura Ray join us, and she asked us. We're shifting gears here. She asked us about video games and if you had a favorite in the Metroidvania genre. And these are these are the responses that we got from you.
1: Wait, didn't she ask something she specific? Also
0: said, okay, yes, she had. A, uh, Laura Ray had a two-part question. Uh, firstly. Uh, In the subject of video games, is Bloodborne the best uh, Metroidvania game of all time? Discuss why or why not? Or if you're not that deep into it, what is your favorite in the Metroidvania genre? And this is what you had to say. Marilyn on Twitter says, Super Metroid might be the second video game I ever played. I haven't played any Metroidvania or Castlevania myself, but I spent many beautiful spooky nights watching friends play Bloodborne. Currently, I'm watching my partner replay Blasphemous, which I think counts, and it's great. Laura talked about Blasphemous a little bit when she was on the show. That's pretty interesting. Malik, do you have opinions on this? (laughs) I am not a
2: a video game player. I mean, I play the... the Switch, Nintendo Switch. I play Smash. Oh, I want. wish I had one it's of those. It's my brother's. I have never owned a console. <laughs> um, so, yeah. My brother has owned almost every console from the Atari, Nintendo 64, all the handhelds. Wow. Wii, the original PlayStation with the little screen. He's very into that. Um, and so okay. I've, <laughs> I've been around, but I'd, I lack the hand-eye coordination that I'm sure would have developed over time, but I just can't get into the the games um so i have okay. no okay. idea what bloodborne or what what she's not transylvania do you want to take a run
0: at it take, you, give it give us your best shot here i'm sure someone will find that quite entertaining uh what did she i have no idea even okay. what she don't, said. Worry, don't worry <laughs> about it yeah no.
1: I, I have very myself i have very limited uh, video game knowledge too so
0: i'm, I'm right B- there with bloodborne's you. about vampires oh. it's a vampire game oh yeah. I was thinking the zombies. Kind of. Well, it's got that. It's kind of got that thing going on in it too. You know, there's these are all. It's a world of possibilities. Yeah, <laughs>
2: zombies are a very popular theme in the games. I see.
1: <laughs> they are. So, Malik, uh, focusing on your topic that we discussed today, do you have a question for our listeners to answer? I do,
2: but my question is kind of a challenge, a little bit. Okay. Oh yeah. It's. I was talking a little bit before about the small changes that we can make in our everyday lives that might have um, an impact on wildlife and wild spaces that are endangered. So whether that is making a bigger effort to recycle or using a reusable water bottle or carpooling more. um, I want to know, what can you do or what is something that you do in your day-to-day life to to make these changes? And if you are someone who is, like, very environmentally, like, privy and tries to do the utmost things that they can, what new things can you do, um, like... Something that I try to work on is I hate styrofoam, as everyone should. And a lot of times (laughs) to-go containers, not that a lot of people are getting to-go nowadays, but something that I was working on before the pandemic is having a clean thing of Tupperware in my car or with me when I go Mm. out to eat so that I could just run out to the car, grab my Tupperware, and put my leftover food in that um, so that I didn't need to use you know styrofoam containers. So that was a challenge that I had to myself. So what mm-hmm. kind of challenges or what kind of small um day-to-day changes can you guys make to help endangered wildlife and
0: wild spaces?
1: That is such a good question/challenge.
0: And you can send in your responses to those question to that question and that challenge what you learn while you're doing that challenge.
1: What do you do, Max?
0: Um I I don't um I don't I don't use disposable silverware ever. I do my best to never do that. And um, at the co-op that I worked at, I uh, had the opportunity to be part of a solution where we just stopped buying disposable silverware for our store's deli. And we just switched to 100% reusable metal flatware that was donated That's awesome. um, by customers. And it was really, really cool to see how immediately it was accepted by the shoppers and what a like big hassle it wasn't like there was no part of this this was difficult it was actually cheaper at first, then constantly buying more plastic spoons and whatever because people would just give us old silverware. Everybody's got too much silverware, yeah. so they would just come and give us old silverware. And it was hard. I mean, it, it took a lot of work on part of the people that worked in the deli on on you know making sure that they were keeping it clean and making sure that it was always available. But once everybody had it built up as just the thing that they do, it was. I mean, it's just it was as if we'd always done. Yeah, it. and Thanks. that's
2: what's so awesome about these little changes is like they really. They don't have to be hard. They don't have to be like bringing no. Tupperware with you. It could be as simple as shopping at the co-op, where there might be lo- more locally sourced items and ingredients, which in itself is helping the environment. Um, sure. Like, mm-hmm. it's not it's not difficult at all, and it, a lot of the times it's fun and more <laughs> frugal. Like you save money a lot of the times doing these environmentally
0: safer options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, dear?
1: Uh, I was using uh, reusable bags, grocery shopping, but then COVID happened and I noticed that uh, some some grocery stores were not allowing it anymore just because of cross-contamination reasons. Um, but that was fun. I also made a challenge to myself, and this is if you are able to, but my challenge was that if I went shopping and I could carry what I bought in my arms to the car in one trip, then I didn't need a bag. Fair yeah.
0: enough. A lot of the times you'll you'll get a, uh, a company will sell you a solution to a problem that's not really a problem. Yeah. You know, like uh, uh, th- th- it was trendy for a while for companies to sell those little like um, bamboo utensils that mm-hmm. you could carry with you everywhere. Mm-hmm. But you have a fork, a knife and a spoon at home that you could probably bring with you mm-hmm. wherever you need Very to go. Very Yeah. Well, that is going to be a lot of fun, I think, to hear what people have to say. And you can send that to uh, you might love this podcast at Gmail dot com. We love reading your emails or you can send it to us on Twitter at you might love TH one, the numeral one. We're also on Facebook. You might love this podcast. It's a fun group full of fun people. And uh, we just love to hear from you wherever you are. And of course, it's always a great—it's always great to see the reviews coming in for the show on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to spread the word about you might love this and help other people find things that they might love. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to say thank you one more time to Malik. It's been wonderful again having you with us today. Yeah, thank you. Of course, thank you guys. And of course, a big thank you to our friends at the Scavengers Network, our home on the internet, where you can find other great podcasts like Myth Takes, which is a really fun uh, live play tabletop role-playing game show that I was on for a few episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, Or... Historical Hotties. Historical Hotties, which is an amazing show where two uh, really fun and funny sisters review their favorite uh, 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 historical figures review who they fancy. Review and judge. Yes.
1: Well, they, they make a... Um, it's kind of they're arguing for the fact that third chosen historical hottie is is the, the is the hottest
0: and it's not just <laughs> it's not just too sexiest to look at it's right. like it's personality you know, who has the coolest uh, who has had the coolest ideas and like the most impactful yeah. um uh, uh life yeah and that kind of thing it's a really fun show
1: yeah
0: uh, and you can find all of those at scavengersnetwork.com uh, or follow uh, scaven at scavengersnet on Twitter. And of course, thank you to our dear friend, Leandra. Thanks
1: Thanks for for the the hand.
0: And I think that's gonna do it for us today. Mm -hmm. So we'll see you again next week. My name's Max. I'm
1: Cassie.
0: I'm Malik. And you might love this. Yes. The Scavengers Network. Creator driven,
1: community focused,
0: treasured content.
1: When I fall in love, I get dizzy. I
3: fall just. Under- this is Historical Hotties, a podcast where we go through different categories of historical figure and try and figure out which one is the biggest babe. Welcome, once again, to Historical Hotties, the show where we rummage around the attic of history in search of the box marked Hotties. With me is the woman who never grows tired of reminding me that the mountain she's named after is way more famous than the mountain I'm named after. For anything that couldn't be transcribed and written on the sheet music, anything that they had to have, like a physical photo or anything, Baker would pin the important documents to her underwear and counted on her fame to avoid strip search when going like across borders and through Nazi checkpoints. I am Whitney Nelson and with us as always is the lady whose first crushes were Sherlock Holmes and Indiana Jones. Lindsay Nelson. Sherlock Holmes was probably definitely a red flag. (laughs) And he also pioneered the walking skirt which is very controversial at the time because it was short enough to see the ankles. One of your most important joints. Is it one of your uh, most important (laughs) joints? (laughs) I don't know. It was because of Princess Song Darling Nikki that explicit warning labels exist. Wow. Tipper gore and uh, zoroastrianism not things I expected to come up in this episode. <laughs> before the hair got fully wild but it's just still kind yeah. of like Yeah, let's, let's talk about uh, old list now because that man yeah. did not age well. Uh, well, before we get to see which list. Uh... <laughs> Alright, well we'll see you next week and uh, stay hot everybody in your tight, tight rock and roll pants. <laughs>
0: That's a good sign-off. I like that. Thank
3: you. <laughs>